morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Tuesday, August 31st. Imperial County voters may surprise Governor Gavin Newsom. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says misinformation about COVID-19 is a public health crisis, and today he plans to introduce a resolution to make that official. Fletcher says the First Amendment gives people the right to say things even if they're untrue, but he says false information about the virus and the vaccines is killing people. People are dying because they are believing things that are untrue. And so as a county, we feel an obligation to lean into this fight. We've got to try and equip every resident with the facts and the truth. Fletcher's proposal includes more resources for combating and countering misinformation. Federal prosecutors will not seek the death penalty against a 22-year-old man accused of the deadly shooting at a Poway synagogue in 2019. John Timothy Ernest pleaded guilty last month to murder and other state charges in connection with the shooting. The shooting left one woman dead and three others injured at the Chabad of Poway. Ernest is scheduled to be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole next month. The National Weather Service has issued a flash flood watch for the mountains and deserts in San Bernardino, Riverside, and San Diego counties. It also includes Coachella Valley and San Gorgonio Pass near Banning. The flash flood watch is from thunderstorms passing through the area. It'll be in effect from 11 a.m. this morning through this evening. The NWS says residents should monitor forecasts and be prepared to leave if a flash flood warning is issued. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. You've been thinking about helping KPBS with a donation. Why not donate that extra car you no longer need? Pickup is free and you're supporting KPBS Public Media. Here's how. Visit kpbs.careasy.org. More than 8 in 10 residents in the Imperial County are Latino, the highest percentage in the state. The county just east of San Diego also saw the state's largest voter swing between the 2016 and 2020 elections in favor of Donald Trump. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati traveled there to see what the region's shifting politics could mean for the September 14th recall election against Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. On a sweltering Saturday morning in El Centro, most shoppers outside a local supermarket were more concerned about their ice cream melting in the triple-digit heat than the recall election. Those who knew voting is already underway, like teacher Rosalba Jepson, had mostly made up their mind in one direction. Yes, get rid of him. This last year has been hard, says Jepson, who thinks Newsom didn't go through struggles like she did, adjusting to distance learning on the fly. Nobody paid me that extra time, and then he's enjoying all this. So, I, you know, I, I just don't think he's a good leader. Polling suggests that Newsom faces two big hurdles to remain in office. One, Democrats are less tuned into this election than Republicans. And two, Latino voters like Jepson are not falling in lockstep with the Democratic Party's no campaign. Those dynamics are on display in Imperial County, where 85 percent of residents are Latino. We are a border region, and so really that colors the way that we view our politics. Stephen Mireles is with the County Republican Central Committee. 
We have families that are here, but we have family in, in Mexico. He says a key reason that Trump cut his margin of defeat by 17 points last year was his focus on the border. And we certainly saw that in terms of the money that was coming into to the region to kind of secure our border, upgrade our fencing. Hiring more Border Patrol workers and upgrading technology means jobs and easier cross-border commutes in Imperial County. And I think that that was one of the issues of many that Trump spoke towards that really motivated voters that hadn't voted Republican or maybe even hadn't voted in many years. Trump also showed up. In 2019, he paid a visit to El Centro in Calexico. So behind us is the wall. It's the new wall. We've done a lot of it and we're doing a lot more. Local GOP organizers like Daniel Flores were able to use Trump's visit to network. People that were present to show the support for President Trump when he arrived, people came up, followed up, they signed up to volunteer, and it, we got him more engaged. To be clear, Imperial County is still overwhelmingly Democratic. The party has a nearly 30-point registration advantage. But while Republicans have momentum, Democrats here have a turnout problem. The share of registered voters who cast a ballot was the lowest of any county in California in both 2018 and 2020. I think one of the, the biggest uh, barriers would be a language barrier. Yomar Aguilar helped start the nonpartisan group Via Vota last year to educate and engage voters. It wasn't anything easy. It was no easy feat because if you're a parent and you, you're not fluent with English, and you have to work more than 40 hours a week, the last thing that's going to be on your mind is, how do I register to vote? And now comes the recall election with its own barriers. It's a unique ballot in an off year, and groups like Valle Vota are trying their best just to catch up. Right now, most people don't even know what the recall is about. That's Raul Reña. He won a seat on the Calexico City Council last year at age 23, with 70% of the vote. Urenya spoke to the pain of residents in Imperial County, which has the state's highest rates of COVID deaths and unemployment. Just the content of the message that people are suffering, it really spoke to um, the fact that they, they did want to change in leadership. In this recall, Newsom can't promise change. So to win over constituents like his, Urenya says the governor needs to remind voters of the recall campaign's original emphasis on immigration. After all, if you look at the recall petition, the very first complaint against Newsom is that his policies, quote, favor foreign nationals. It's not about COVID. It's not about stealing money. It's the proponents of this measure think that Governor Newsom is helping illegal immigrants too much and all of this racist uh, rhetoric that is coming out. And Durenia says the governor should come visit. And that was KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati. San Diego City employees will soon be required to be vaccinated for COVID-19. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says some city departments have a long way to go. Just 49 percent of San Diego's sworn police officers are fully vaccinated, the lowest rate of any city employee union. Meanwhile, 65 percent of all the city's more than 11,000 employees have been fully vaccinated. That's supposed to be 100 percent by November 2nd, when those who still refuse to get vaccinated could lose their jobs. UCSD public health professor Rebecca Fielding Miller says interacting with the public is part of a city employee's job. And the public also has a right to feel safe in those interactions. And in a pandemic, 
that means that the person you're interacting with has a lower probability of giving you an airborne infectious disease. Mayor Todd Gloria says COVID outbreaks are interfering with essential city operations and the vaccine requirement will keep city staffers and the public safe. And that was KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. San Diego is mourning the loss of the 10 service members from Camp Pendleton who died in a suicide bombing attack outside the airport in Kabul last Thursday. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh has more. The Pentagon announced just after midnight August 31st Kabul time that the last U.S. flight left Afghanistan. That officially means that the 13 U.S. troops who died last Thursday would be the last Americans killed in a war that lasted nearly 20 years. A makeshift memorial is growing at the gates of Camp Pendleton, where nine of the Marines and one sailor who died were each stationed. Charlene Beard is a military spouse of a Navy corpsman. They are babies. To have their life be taken from them is just, it's just unbearable. Like, I can't, I might not have known them, but it's a piece of me. Cullen Float is a retired Marine Master Sergeant who felt a kinship with the young Marines. And this breaks my heart to hear something like this. This is somebody's friend, this is somebody's son, daughters. The San Diego VA has seen a spike in requests for mental health assistance since the evacuation began two weeks ago. Dr. Abigail Enkow says the larger veteran community is also in mourning. We're seeing veterans with a range of emotions and it, I'd say in terms of recommendations, it, it's probably best not to assume that somebody should respond in a specific way and at the same time to create a space to allow them to share and to invite them to share. Over the weekend, the bodies returned to Dover Air Force Base. Among the dead, Lance Corporal Rayleigh McCollum was about to have a baby. Three of the four Marines were from Riverside County in the Inland Valley. Corporal Hunter Lopez is the son of a Riverside County Sheriff's Deputy. Marine Lance Corporal Dylan Morola was from Rancho Cucamonga. His high school football team honored him by wearing red, white, and blue at their game Friday night. The rest of the unit is not scheduled to return to San Diego until sometime in the fall. In the meantime, Pendleton has dispatched chaplains to conduct crisis counseling. And that was KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Coming up, school is back in session for the San Diego Unified School District. But for the second year in a row, going to school is far from normal. What can parents do to help their kids cope? By being able to offer them a space to express what their concerns are. We may be surprised to find out how their concerns are valid for them, but different than what we're focusing on. More on that next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. San Diego Unified had their first day back at school yesterday. And for the second year in a row, we're looking at an experience defined by the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. If dealing with the illness itself wasn't enough, debates over masking and vaccines have elevated the level of political discord and division to sometimes concerning levels. So as kids return to school, how can parents best support them during this time? And what are some of the strategies they can employ to connect 
with their kids about the coronavirus amid all the uncertainty and disruption it brings. To talk about it is Dr. Ian Shear, a clinical child psychologist. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Here's that interview. So do you have any advice for parents about how to talk to their kids about the coronavirus as they enter the new school year? I think one thing that is really helpful for parents to be mindful of is that although we've all been significantly impacted by the COVID pandemic, in my experience, the things that have been affecting and concerning children and teenagers often are very different aspects of the pandemic than those of us as parents and adults. So I think one thing that parents can really try to do in our efforts to support them as they go back to school is by being able to offer them a space to express what their concerns are. We may be surprised to find out how their concerns are valid for them, but different than what we're focusing on. And there's something about being able to be having an opportunity for our kids to express those concerns to someone who cares and someone who's trying to understand them that can really give them the support that they need at this time. Well, so what are some of the things that students are probably more a bit more concerned about that parents hadn't even thought of? Many kids, depending on the age of them, are really so focused on the social aspects of returning to school, of being in a different place, the changing in their structure, and the unpredictability that's happened throughout this pandemic. So I think just the uncertainty is something that many kids have on their minds and just a real desire, in a sense, to be able to feel that they have some predictability and control moving forward. They just want to know what's going to happen and what can they expect so they can adjust. How much should we be talking about the pandemic with children? Well, I certainly think that parents need to initiate the conversation. It's important because we can't rely that our kids will start it with us. At the same time, I think it's important to know what is the goal of having those conversations. And if our goal is to give them support, to make sure they know the necessary information so they can be safe and keep others around them safe, then those conversations are very important. I also think that in my experience working with kids, oftentimes we as parents are much more anxious than our kids are. And so I think we also want to be mindful to see, are these conversations helping our kids to be prepared for school, to be prepared for moving into the future? Or are we burdening them with our excess anxiety and doing more to give them stress and increase their anxiety than helping them? So what are some specific techniques parents can try to uh, talk to their kids amidst all the fear and uncertainty that the coronavirus can bring? Well, we need to ask them some questions. But like I said before, we really need to give them the space to, to share with us the way we help our children to feel safer, the way we help them to decrease their anxiety is by letting them be the ones who are doing the expressing. When our children are able to convey how they're feeling, convey their thoughts, their concerns, their fears and their confusions to someone who they feel is understanding them and cares, it really does a tremendous job in helping them to have the support they need to navigate the things that they're working through. Is there anything you'd hope kids could gain from this pandemic experience? As much as we don't like to think about it or recognize it, there, is, there can be good that comes from adversity. As parents, we, we hate, it pains us to see our children struggling, but we also often know from our own lives that those times when we had to deal and work through adversity is often the the foundation that led to some significant growth and changes and uh, improvements in our lives. 
you know, in July, we talked to social worker Kim Eisenberg about what she referred to as COVID whiplash, this phenomenon where we thought we were through the worst of the pandemic, but then the rise of the Delta variant has really squashed that optimism. Here's what she had to say. We thought we were coming out of the woods and experiencing a return to normalcy or or figuring out the new normal. And now all of a sudden we're faced with, there's no other way to put it, whiplash back to where we were, um, you know, earlier this year. So what is your take on COVID whiplash? Is this something you're seeing in your practice? I certainly am. It's, It's a really real thing. And it's really frustrating. I think we all got to a place where things seemed a bit more predictable, and now we're a little bit back into the unknown. What I would say is that because of the Delta rise, things are a little bit less predictable, but I think this notion of whiplash is temporary. Have you seen a difference in your patients' mental health since the coronavirus uh, pandemic started? What I've seen to be the biggest struggle hasn't been um, as much the mental health of the teenagers and children I work with. What I've seen more of has just been real struggles in families, largely because families have approached the way they wanted to manage the threat of COVID so differently for various reasons, often necessity if they have at-risk or elderly people in their homes, and other families handle it very differently. So it's really been a struggle for parents trying to set the boundaries that they feel are necessary and safe in their home when they have children who have friends who are acting in a very different way. It's been a real big struggle for parents how to navigate in a way that's fair to their children, but also feels responsible to them. Let me ask you this question, because we talk uh, often talk about the resiliency of children, and you earlier mentioned how um, they, they overcome so much uh, adversity. Are students, you think, mature enough to understand the consequences of not wearing a mask, of not socially distancing, of not washing their hands? I, I, I certainly don't think that we could capture all children um, into one boat. I think many kids have a sensitivity and appreciation for it. I think it's also important that we recognize that from a developmental level, that would be a lot to expect and to put on children. Um, developmentally, their focus typically isn't you know, serving, protecting the community around them. We hope that that will be, and I would say, even if your child isn't showing that at this moment, That doesn't mean they're not well on their way down that path. Um, But I do think that'd be a lot. And as a result, I think as parents, we need to continue to be responsible and to make sure we're enforcing the types of, of expectations that will keep everyone safe. And do you see any signs of optimism when it comes to our children's experience during the pandemic? Anytime we have a chance to change and shift our perspective on things, it allows for good things to happen. In the kids I work with in my private practice, Things that were a really big deal two years ago really aren't that big of a deal. They're much smaller today. And um, I've often like chuckled almost myself that for 20 years, I've talked to kids about how much they hate going to school. And for the last 20 months, I've been talking with kids about how much they hate not going to school. And I think that there must be a silver lining in that. That was clinical child psychologist Dr. Ian Shear. He was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. 
And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio, or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.